The Guardian. T-minus 30 seconds. When the company SpaceX was founded by Elon Musk back in 2002, with the expressed goal of enabling the colonization of Mars, some could be forgiven for not taking the company all that seriously. T-minus 10, 9, But by 2020, things have certainly changed. The successful launch of the reusable spacecraft Dragon 2 this year saw SpaceX become the first private company to send astronauts to the International Space Station. Three, two, one. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon. SpaceX continues America's mission to resupply the International Space Station from U.S. soil. Ever since the relaxation of rules around space travel in the U.S. in 2004, a kind of new space race has been underway. Companies like Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic being another high-profile example of a private company investing billions in space travel. But is this more than just the latest arena for exhibitionism by publicity-hungry billionaires? Is it a legitimate attempt to push our horizons? What does this mean for government agencies like NASA or even President Trump's much-derided US Space Force? I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. I spoke to John Logston, Professor Emeritus at the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University, to get his perspective. How are you, John? This is Ian Sample. Oh, I'm coping. You know, we're still pretty much locked down in the Washington area. How's it been for you? Well, I've had a project to keep me busy, but I'm about out of... Uh, resources for the project, so things need to open up for me. It gets quite dull, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> John, you've been a close observer of the space business for some decades now. I hope you don't mind me saying time. that. How did you get into this? Well, my first degree was in physics, then decided to do a career change in political science. So in the early 1960s, with space happening all around me. Almost every paper was on the politics or history or political history of the space program. So that, that's really my training as a policy analyst, political scientist. So your career covers essentially all of space exploration. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, one of the most notable memories of my life was being at the Apollo 11 launch. Uh, so I saw exploration happen. Oh my goodness, you've seen some changes. Indeed. We recently saw SpaceX bury their first crew to the International Space Station. I don't know if you were watching that mission launch, but you were, I'm sure, aware of it. What were your thoughts on that mission going up? It was cool that SpaceX has gotten itself to the position where it can carry off a difficult technical feat like that. On the other hand, I mean, it's in a sense, a step backward. I mean, we're launching people on a uh, rocket uh, in, in, with a capsule, uh, the same way we did with Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. We'll see how much reusability they will be able to get out of the capsule. What would you have liked to have seen then? You say it was a step backwards. Would you have liked to have seen some sort of innovative type of um, crew capsule or rocket or what? Well, I wish we had gone to a second-generation shuttle uh, learning from the experience of the initial uh, U.S. space shuttle and, and did something that is uh, runway landing that doesn't have to call out the fleet in order to recover a crew. 
you know, that's what I mean by step backwards is we've put the shuttle behind us and gone back to the way we launched crew in the 60s and early 70s. You know, I've written a lot of the history of this stuff and people forget the history. We developed technologies essential for lowering the cost of going to space. Lockheed Martin is building and will fly an extraordinary, fully reusable vehicle. In 1994, the Clinton administration issued a policy calling for the United States to develop a single stage to orbit spaceplane. Its first 450 mile flight from Southern California to Utah will take just 14 minutes. With something called the X-33 or Venture Star. The idea is almost a comic strip space plane. Take off from a runway, fly directly to orbit without shedding anything. That's what single stage to orbit means and then be able to come back and land on a runway. So it would be a plane, but a plane that had the capability of carrying people and things into orbit. It turned out that we hadn't invested in the technology with enough resources to make it doable. But something like that, I think, is eventually what we're going to have to do. It's what SpaceX is trying to do with its new spacecraft called Starship that's in the early stages of development. It keeps blowing up on them, unfortunately. <laughs> it's basically what we all dreamed of when we were nine years old. Just jump in a space rocket plane, fly up, come down, get back on with your day. Yep. And eventually, I think, we will accomplish that. But eventually is a long time. Let's get back to the SpaceX launch and that first private ferrying of astronauts up to the space station. In the big picture, is there a significance in that launch? Does it signify anything important? I, I guess I'm one of the doubters on all the private sector hoopla around this. I mean, it was a launch that NASA paid for. SpaceX provided taxi service to carry two NASA astronauts to a international government facility and it was paid for with U.S. government money. So where is the private in there? Well, SpaceX developed this with some of its own money and some of the government's money for development. So I think it's a mixed public-private thing. There was less government oversight and involvement in the development of the Crew Dragon, but it was still a partnership between SpaceX and the government to develop this capability. So I think headlining it as private is a little deceptive. It's, in my mind, not close to that yet. There are other companies beyond SpaceX, though, who are sort of buying for this kind of business, right? They must see something in it. There are two kinds of businesses. There is Virgin Galactic with Richard Branson, which is only going suborbital. It's going up and down in a few minutes. It's not going to orbit. Technically, that's a much easier thing to do than controlling the energy to get somebody accelerated to orbital velocity. And Virgin Galactic and well behind them, Blue Origin, think that there is a business in carrying people for up to 100 kilometers, the experience being in outer space for a few minutes. So that's one kind of business. Then there's the other business uh, I think much further downstream of carrying people 
getting them accelerated to Mach 25 of 17,000 miles an hour, which is orbital velocity, going to orbit or going to a place in orbit or maybe even beyond. I mean, there are people arguing that that you could, with a, a little extra work, take what we saw with the SpaceX launch and fly the capsule around the moon, a la Apollo 8. We'll see. There, I think there there is that possibility, but you need a lot of rich people with a lot of money to make it a profit-making private business. Before the multi-millionaires start turning up with their credit cards. Billionaires. billionaires. <laughs> um, I'm wondering where private industry spacecraft really are going to go. I mean, is the space station essentially the only viable destination right now? Well, right now is the thing to underline. There's a company based in Houston called Axiom that wants to start out by putting a private finance module attached to the space station to be a destination for tourist travel, if you want, for visitors. With their ultimate goal being building a privately owned, privately operated outpost in space that could be a destination for these kind of travel. And that would be in low Earth orbit as well, presumably, a similar orbit to the ISS. Yes, uh, at least first, because uh, in a sense, it's not that much harder once you get to low Earth orbit to get to other more distant destinations. It's getting out of the Earth's gravity well that's really hard. Do you see this playing out in a way that you will have SpaceX and maybe one or two other firms taking supplies to the International Space Station over the coming years, perhaps, and then if, if that becomes a norm, would we expect to see maybe those same firms starting to get involved in this hopeful expansion of exploration, human exploration around the moon, the next sort of phase of that sort of work? Well, that was the idea when this program started. It was called Commercial Crew. And at that time, it was SpaceX, then Boeing. I mean, in a sense, they're under the same deal. And then there's another much more like the space plane thing called Sierra Nevada, which is trailing along six or eight years behind Boeing and SpaceX. And it's a little hard to tell what Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, is actually up to because they don't publicize their long-range plans. And for that matter, Virgin Galactic, I think, also would like to do orbital space travel, not just suborbital, somewhere along the line. So there are people wanting to go down this route. Almost all of them need initial government funding in order to make this viable. But you do see, by the sounds of things, some of those big players getting involved in the next load of space exploration that is due to be focused more around the moon rather than in, in low Earth orbit, right? Well, they say so. Elon Musk's vision is a million-person city on Mars. Bezos' vision is millions of people working maybe in habitats and stations in space, not on a celestial body, not on the moon or Mars, but moving industry, and particularly polluting industry, into space and having millions of people living and working and doing useful work in space. So wonderful visions. We'll see. 
are other countries looking to get their own national private sector more involved in the space business? Or is this really predominantly a U.S. thing? Well, certainly to date, it's been predominantly a U.S. thing. But I mean, you hear occasional murmurings in Europe. There are some newcomers like the United Arab Emirates and India that have plans for human spaceflight that lead to this direction. And China is going to launch its own space station. So there will be a Chinese space station in low Earth orbit beginning, I guess, next year. Uh, You know, where China goes in the next 20, 30, 40 years will be interesting to watch. How important is the moon going to be in the coming decade, do you think? I mean, is the moon going to have sort of geopolitical importance in the years ahead? Well, 12 Americans walked on the moon between 69 and 72. Then we quit. We did not explore the moon. We just visited there six times and then stopped. So I think the reason to go back is to find out whether there are resources there, whether it's location provides geopolitical strategic advantages to one or more countries on Earth, or whether it is just a dead place that just happens to be nearby, but there's really not much of scientific or economic or strategic interest there. We don't know that yet. To to me, that's the reason to go back. You can imagine it having a number of values beyond the important one of showcasing your technological expertise to the rest of the world. There is that potential, presumably, for exploitation of some kind of resources there, minerals, what have you. Uh, The exploitation of water ice uh, in the craters at the poles of the moon is everybody's kind of fantasy that you could somehow extract that, process it, get water out of it, get oxygen, get hydrogen, make rocket fuel, help sustain uh, lunar settlements and use it to fuel a space economy, literally fuel, make rocket fuel out of it. All of that is to be determined. That's my point of going back and finishing the exploration. We don't really know what form that ice is in, how much of it is actually there, what it would take to extract it. All of those are nice ideas, which I hope someday we will be able to see whether they're real or not. You can see how countries would want to be there because it's going to be the countries who are there who are going to be deciding the regulations around, you know, who owns what, who can do what. The sorts of things we see going on actually in Antarctica when the way that is divided up nationally and internationally. Well, that's already started. NASA has promoted, the U.S. government is promoting something called the Artemis Accords which are a set of rules of behavior for countries that will be engaged in space exploration. The U.S. has put that on the table saying, here's what we think that countries that want to join us uh, in the Artemis program, that Artemis is the program to go back to the moon. Here are the agreements that they have to sign up to if they're going to do that. And in there is issues of private property and exploitation and preserving zones for historical purposes like the sites of the lunar landings. So there is a set of provisions the United States has already developed 
as a kind of negotiating position. If we're going to go back to the moon, here are the rules that we should be following. How do you think the national and international relationships are going to evolve as these crewed space missions move away from low Earth orbit to the moon? I mean, since the space race, there's been a very dominant pairing, it seems to me, between the US and Russia. Obviously, China are doing a lot. How do you see these things playing out? Well, I think it's not going to be a race. It'll be a competition. I mean, a race has a finish line. That was the problem with Apollo. We said, get to the moon first. We got to the moon first, won the race and quit. I think competition for achievement is good. And as long as it's competition that stays peaceful, that is in the bounds of subset of rules, I think the more the merrier. China, by the way, has reached out through the United Nations to other countries to partner with it in its, first of all, space station, to use its space station and then whatever follows. So China is not pursuing a unilateral path. It's pursuing a competitive path. You know, you have the U.S., Russian, European, Japanese, Canadian alliance on the space station, which is supposed to be the basis for the next round of exploration, and China. So you may have a duopoly, at least for the next little while, in large-scale space exploration activities. It's going to be interesting to observe. I mean, the fact that I've been at this so long means I'm old. So how much more I get to observe, I don't know. I've said over and over again, on the morning of July the 16th, 1969, I was at the crew building and watched Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins walk by me on the way to the moon. Here they are as they left the Manned Space Center. Armstrong, and then I believe it's uh, Collins and then Aldrin, isn't it? That would very likely be the order, yes. I want to see uh, the next crew walk by me. Uh, it's been a goal for a long time. <laughs> John, this has been really fascinating to hear your thoughts on, and I'm really grateful to you for joining us and sharing all this stuff. I'm very much hoping you get to see this next crew, and let's hope it's soon. I've got my fingers crossed. Thanks so much, John. Well the plaque that's on the front landing gear of this lamb. There's, there's two hemispheres, one showing each of the two hemispheres of Earth. Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. July 1969. It came in peace. Oh, beautiful, Mike. Please keep sending in your questions on COVID-19 for our continued coverage of the pandemic. Look after yourselves. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.